0: Genesis chapter 20, starting in verse 1. Now Abraham journeyed from there toward the land of the Negev and settled between Kadesh and Shur, and he sojourned in Gerar. And Abraham said of Sarah his wife, She's my sister. So Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. But God came to Abimelech in a dream of the night and said to him, Behold, you are a dead man. Because of the woman you have taken, for she is married. Now Abimelech had not come near her, and he said, Lord, will you slay a nation even though blameless? Did not he himself say to me, she is my sister? And she herself said, he is my brother? In the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hands, I have done this. And then God said to him in the dream, yes, I know that in the integrity of your heart you have done this. And I also kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Now, therefore, restore the man's wife, for he is a prophet, and he will pray for you, and you will live. But if you do not restore her, know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. Let's pray. Father, I have no idea who this message is for this morning. But I take great comfort in the fact that you know. I don't know, Lord, where everybody's heart is as we walk in, sit down, and open up your word this morning, but I am so grateful, Father, that you know. And so this morning, Father, as we study the scriptures, I pray that you would write these words on our hearts and on our minds. Father, if there is one, an individual, a person for whom this message is important to hear, would you completely open their ears to hear it this morning? And touch each of us, Father, in the way that only your Holy Spirit can. Be our teacher this morning, Father. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I want to go back. Last week we talked about Abraham haggling with God, talking with God about Sodom and Gomorrah and and asking God to please, please spare the city. He said, God, we just spare it for 50 people? And God said, for 50 righteous people, I'll spare it. Well, how about 45? Okay, for 45. 40? Yes, for 40. 30? Okay, for 30. 20? 10 gets them all the way down to 10. And so, the next morning comes upon this region. Look in chapter 19, verse 23. It tells us the sun had risen over the earth when Lot came to Zoar. And then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah brimstone and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the city and what grew on the ground. But his wife from behind him looked back, and she became a pillar of salt. Now Abraham arose early in the morning, and he went to the place where he had stood before the Lord. And he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the valley, and he saw, and behold... The smoke of the land ascended like a smoke, the smoke of a furnace. Thus it came about, when God destroyed the cities of the valley, that God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow, when he overthrew the cities in which Lot lived. Again, the last time we saw Abraham, he was interceding for Lot. Now it's the next morning. It's the next day and Abraham gets up early arises early in the morning and goes up to the hills to look down on the valley of Siddam the valley of Sodom and Gomorrah and and the five cities down there. And as Abraham looks down there must have been one thought in his mind were there ten righteous people? Was it enough? Is Lot's family are they okay? But a grim sight meets Abraham's eyes as he looks down on the valley for it is completely laid waste wiped out the smoke like a smoke of a furnace, rising. And I have to wonder, how did Abraham feel? What was he thinking in those moments? Was Lot dead? Was he alive? Was his family okay? Weren't there even ten decent people in the entire valley? It must have been overwhelming for him. It must have been confusing. Don't get stuck in the fact that we talk about Abraham as the father of the faithful. He was a man like anyone else. He struggled with faith like anyone else, as we see in chapter 20. He had sins and failures like anybody else, but he did believe in God. And yet, don't take the human emotion out of Abraham in this moment. How would you feel if you were standing in his sandals, looking down on the smoke rising from the land, wondering if your nephew was alive or dead, your family had made it or not? What do you think when you're confused? When you wonder, Lord, what in the world are you doing? I don't understand. I don't get it. Most of us are a lot more like Abraham than we might think. When faced with tragedy or loss or hardship, many of us do the same thing that Abraham did that we will see this morning. We move from faith out to the fringe. We move from that place of being in fellowship with God... Out to a place of distance, on the edge of faith, wondering how could God allow these things to happen. Look at verse 1 of Genesis chapter 20 again. Now Abraham journeyed from there toward the land of the Negev and settled between Kadesh and Shur, and he sojourned in Gerar. The sojourner is on the move again. Abraham is now 100 years old, and he's lived in Hebron for the past 15 years But it's move time again. Why? Interesting that the last thing we see, Abraham looks down he sees the smoke rising from Sodom. And he moves. He leaves. Why does he do it? You know, we can't know exactly what's going on in Abraham's heart here. But I think we can fairly compare his shock to our shock on September 11, 2001. Consider for a moment Abraham watching the devastation and think about your own morning on September 11th watching the devastation and the smoke rising from New York City. There was a sense of devastation, a sense of of numbness among all of us. Something that drew our nation together in the strangest way possible. People walking around in a daze for the next several days afterwards wondering how could this possibly happen. Emotionally taught, We were walking around, some of us busting into tears over the slightest little thing. Because that was so devastating just to experience, just to watch it happen. And immediately following the devastation of Sodom, Abraham packs up and he leaves Hebron. I believe because he couldn't stay. Because watching the devastation, the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah was overwhelming to him. In chapter 19, he asks the question, Shall not the judge of all the earth deal justly? Isn't God fair? Won't you be fair, Lord? And then he sees this happen, and i got to wonder, is he asking the question again? How does this happen? How could God not only allow something horrible to happen, like 9-11, but worse than that, how could he cause... Such absolute destruction. Now, don't misunderstand me. I am not comparing the righteous judgment of the Lord to the unrighteous terror of Al-Qaeda. Two different things. God is just. God knows what he's doing. And God made the right call. We studied that and looked at it last week. But what I am saying is, the experience of watching such destruction go down must have been emotionally confusing, devastating. It must have just wiped Abraham out. One thing we know from Scripture is Abraham has no clue if Lot is okay. What was Lot supposed to do? Call him on the phone? Ring him up on the cell? Abraham didn't have any idea if Lot made it out or not. And as I read of Abraham rising early in the morning in in chapter 19, verse 27, I get a picture, I get a sense of a man who is very confused. We know God remembered Abraham and saved Lot, but we also know that Abe doesn't know it. He has no idea. And so he heads down to a place called Gerar. Gerar is 10 to 15 miles south of the area we know as Gaza today. It's on the Mediterranean coast. And folks, it was the capital city of an interesting people who had an early coastal foothold on the region. A people that we're going to see a lot as we study the Bible, as we go on through. A people who gave Israel all kinds of trouble. Gerar was the capital of the Philistines. Now, I've got to give you a little historical side note. And it's because it's important to me that you understand world events and what's truly going on. So before we get back to the scripture, I want you to understand something here. Yasser Arafat's Palestinian people take their name from the Philistines. That's where the, the name Palestine or Palestinian comes from is, is the Philistines. That's where they take the name. And they believe that because the Philistines were in the land before the Jews from time immemorial... That therefore they have the true rights to the land, that it truly belongs to them. Here's the historical evidence, the historical truth of the matter. In 132 A.D., actually 135 A.D., the name Palestine was given to the land by an emperor of Rome named Hadrian. Emperor Hadrian, in 132 A.D., three years prior to this, renamed Jerusalem Alia Capitolina. Aelia Capitolina, a mixture of Adrian, Hadrian, his name, and Jupiter Capitolinus, the Greek god Jupiter, or the Roman god Jupiter. He took both the god Jupiter and his name and put it together for Aelia Capitolina and said, this now is the name of Jerusalem. And then he began construction on a temple to Jupiter on the Jewish temple mount. Well, the Jews were incensed. They went ballistic. And in 132 A.D., the Bar Kokhba revolt. Began. It was the last uprising that there would ever be of Jews in the region. But they began to fight back guerrilla warfare against Rome. They took several cities, several regions around there. They actually were having some success until Hadrian absolutely incensed that the Jews' behavior put down the rebellion so hard that 1,900,000 Jews were murdered, were slaughtered by Hadrian. The rest were either driven out of Israel or they were allowed to stay there in the land if they were weak, weak, sick, or infirm. Elderly people who couldn't make a journey out of the land were allowed to stay, but the, but the, the controls were incredible. If two Jews met in the street and spoke to one another, they were instantly killed. They couldn't even talk to each other if they were allowed to live in the land for those who had survived. Anyone who spoke the word Jerusalem In front of Emperor Hadrian, or in front of any Roman citizen, was immediately put to death. Hadrian salted the land. Some of you may remember this. He went over all the lands of Israel and and poured salt everywhere, absolutely destroying the crops. It was once a green and fertile land. It was once absolutely beautiful. It's kind of headed back that direction again, thanks to the work of the Jews in Israel. But he destroyed the land and made it a dry, arid, desert region. And he renamed the region Syria-Palestina, or Syria of the Philistines. He did it to slap the collective Jewish people in the face. That was the whole point. Hadrian, a Roman, called it Philistine land. This now is Philistine land. And for you Jews who are even here, your worst enemy? Yeah, you remember them, the Philistines from history? Well, this is their land now. They didn't exist anymore. They were completely gone. But he did it to slap them in the face. It would be like someone calling New York York City Osama land or Al-Qaeda-ville. How would you feel about that? Yasser Arafat today claims kinship with the Philistines but they were not his people and Palestine is not his land. Yasser Arafat and the people who we see right now as the Palestinian people are Arabs. The Philistines were not Arabic. Different race, different line. Different ethnic group. Well, back to our story, Genesis 20. Abraham is in Gerar, which is still in the boundaries of the promised land. But as far as faith is concerned, Abraham has moved out to the fringe. How do we know this? If you take notes, you might want to jot down a few things this morning. Three things I want to give you. Number one, Abraham leaves the fellowship. Abraham leaves the fellowship. He leaves Hebron. Now, Hebron, by definition of its name, the Hebrew word Hebron means fellowship. And so Abraham steps out of fellowship. He leaves this place where he had built an altar and made his home for 15 years. And in that time when he leaves Hebron, he leaves the fellowship. We, we get this picture of him stepping out of fellowship with the Lord. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 9 says, God is faithful through whom you were called into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. That, that's mind-boggling. That I can be in fellowship, connection. That word fellowship is koinonia. This close communal connection with God, with our great Creator. We have been called into fellowship with Him, with His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Don't miss, miss the significance of this, folks. God is not seeking underlings, He is not seeing, seeking robots or automatons or bootlickers. He invites you to relationship. To fellowship. That's what God is looking for. First John chapter 1, verse 3. John writes, What we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also. So that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. That's the kind of fellowship that I long for. Not a false, restrictive, roster type church fellowship that, that so easily replaced, or so easily replaces the wonder of fellowship with God. Listen, folks. When a body of Christians gets together like we're doing today, when a body of people gather together in the name of Jesus or in the name of the Lord, something happens that has nothing to do with whether or not you're on the rolls. You come into fellowship with God the Father and with his family. That's why we gather here. That's why we're together. It's not about building some big massive thing. It's not about saying, hey, yeah, I'm part of the movement up on North Whitby. Yeah, well, we're really rolling now. Look at all the people we got coming in. Folks, if we start to think that way, we miss the point. The point is connection, fellowship with each other, and fellowship with God. Family. Before having the barbecue today. Not that hamburgers and hot dogs, you know, produce fellowship. Produce other things we won't get into. But the whole point is to stick around, to know each other. Can I encourage you something here? God has done something amazing with the bridge, this, this group that we call the bridge. He's brought together this group so fast, so quickly, that there are a number of new people. And when I say new people, we're all new. There's nobody old at this church. No, and some of you who are older than me are going, all right. nobody old at this church, that's good. Nobody's been here a long time. There are no vast traditions that we're sitting in. Nothing. We're we're just all brand new. So let me encourage you to pursue fellowship not only with the Lord but with each other. You see someone you don't know their name, go up and talk to them. Say, hi, I don't know you. And they can say, well, I introduced myself to you four times. You go, okay, well, I'm a moron. (laughs) That's my first name, moron. (laughs) Seek fellowship. Abraham left fellowship with the Lord. He left Hebron, and it's interesting, he goes to this place between Kadesh and Shur. Kadesh means holiness, Shur means wilderness. So, what we see is that Abraham leaves fellowship to go live between holiness and the wilderness. He's on the fringe, he's on the edge, he's wandering. Still not convinced, let's go further. Second thing to note. Not only does Abraham leave the fellowship, Abraham leaves the altar. He leaves the altar. Now listen, every time Abraham sojourns and settles, every time he stops and builds an altar to the Lord... Genesis 12 verse 7 tells us The Lord appeared to Abram and said To your descendants I will give this land So he built an altar there to the Lord Who had appeared to him Genesis 12 8 says He proceeded from there to the mountains On the east of Bethel And pitched his tent with Bethel on the west And Ai on the east And there he built an altar to the Lord And called upon the name of the Lord Second time Genesis 13 verse 3 Abraham returns after being down in Egypt for a season and it tells us he went on his journeys from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning between Bethel and Ai to the place of the altar which he had made there formerly and there Abram called on the name of the Lord. And in Genesis chapter 13 verse 18 Then Abram moved his tent and came and dwelt by the oaths of Mamre which are in Hebron and there he built an altar to the Lord. Abraham, we talked about this before, was a sojourner and a worshiper. A traveler who knew his place was not in this world, but also a worshiper because every time he stopped, every time he stopped traveling and settled in a place, he built an altar. Every time, but two. The first one is Genesis chapter 12, verse 10. Flipping your Bibles back there just for a moment. Genesis chapter 12. Verse 10. We know again in verse 8 that he built an altar to the, to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. But Genesis 12.10 tells us. Now there was a famine in the land. So Abraham went down to Egypt to sojourn there. For the famine was severe in the land. And it came about when he came near to Egypt that he said to Sarai his wife, See now, I know that you are a beautiful woman. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, This is his wife and they will kill me. But they will let you live Please say that you're my sister So that it may go, may go well with me because of you And that I may live on account of you Folks, the second time Abraham settled, settled without building an altar Was right here in Gerar Flipping back to Genesis 20 Genesis chapter 12 what We just read, interesting Abraham had built an altar He's doing well with God But a famine comes into the land And he starts to get worried A little nervous I better do something i, I got to protect myself Now God said Go to the promised land And I will provide for you But Abraham's not used to Being provided for by the Lord So he says I gotta go to Egypt There's food down there I'm heading down to Egypt And every time you head down to Egypt In the Bible Sin is about to happen It's a picture of sin And Abraham goes down to Egypt Lies about his wife Gets all kinds of spoils for it While his wife gets carted off To Pharaoh's harem Not a good thing Consider that and keep that in mind as we go forward here. Back to chapter 20. It tells us that Abraham, verse 2, said of Sarah, his wife, she is my sister. He does it again. It's the second time now. The second time Abraham does this, he leaves the altar in Hebron. He goes to Gerar, and instead of building an altar, he steps further out of fellowship with God, and he begins to repeat the very same sin he had repeated or he had committed 25 years earlier. This is so disappointing. I think Abraham, you've had 25 years of walking with the Lord, 25 years of faith, 25 years. Shouldn't he have it down by now? Well, as disappointing as it is for me to look at Abraham, it's also very encouraging because after 25 years of faith, I still fall flat on my face and sin, just like Abraham. But I'll tell you when I tend to do it. It's when I've left the altar. It's when worship becomes something that that I'm not connected to. It's when I walk away from God and those places, those times, that place in my heart where He is most important and I get out onto the fringe. Abraham, in despair and confusion, leaves Hebron, heads over to Gerar, doesn't build an altar there, and begins to lie about his relationship with his wife. His faith goes on the fritz. And Abraham is on the fringe. The third thing to take note of in the story is that when Abraham leaves Hebron and moves away from the altar, again he repeats the same thing he did before. Third thing, Abraham has now left fellowship. He has now left the altar and number three he returns to an old sin he returns to an old sin this is just amazing look in verse two again Abraham said of Sarah his wife she's my sister so Abimelech king of Gerar sent and took Sarah but God came to Abimelech in a dream of the night and said to him, behold you are a dead man because you because of the woman whom you have taken for she is married." Now Abimelech had not come near her and said, Lord, will you slay a nation even though blameless? Did he not himself say to me, she's my sister? And she herself said, he's my brother. In the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hands I have done this. I think it's very interesting how God replies. Look at verse 6. Then God said to him in the dream, yes, I know that in the integrity of your heart you have done this. But God doesn't say anything about the innocence of his hands. It ignores that point and just says I kept you from sinning against me this is a tricky passage in fact Wednesday night we're going to work on it we're going to spend some time in it because it's tricky to understand There's some things happening here Abraham clearly sins Abimelech clearly does something innocently with integrity he didn't know but God warns threatens Abimelech and calls Abraham his prophet so whose side is God on here? Is God okay with Abraham's lie? Well, we're going to talk about that Wednesday night. But here's the problem. Here's the deal with Abraham. He never dealt with his prior sin in Egypt. He never dealt with it. He never repented. He never owned up to it. We see at the end of chapter 13, is it? Chapter chapter 12, we see that Abraham comes out of Egypt with carts and carts and carts of good things. And men's servants and servants, and oxen and sheep, all kinds of things. He comes out of Egypt and we think, wow, he got off scot-free. Now you remember he also brought home an Egyptian maidservant named Hagar, which caused all kinds of problems. But you never see in Scripture Abraham stopping and repenting. Stopping and saying, God, I was wrong. Forgive me for my sin. Forgive me for doing this. Abraham now, 25 years later, returns to a sin that was never dealt with. Never repented of. Never accounted for. Now there are signs at the end of the chapter here, chapter 20, that he's beginning to realize that and repent. And again, we'll deal with that Wednesday. But it's also interesting to me that Abraham has to deal with this before Isaac is born. Which happens in chapter 21 two verses Abraham leaves where he's at goes to Gerar and Abraham calls Sarah his wife sister and I could not get past these two verses this week I couldn't move beyond it I kept trying to read the chapter and I go back to these two verses and it was why? what? I just felt stuck there and I kept having a sense that God was saying because somebody's going to need to hear this And I have no idea who it is. And I prayed about it and thought about it. But folks, listen. I need to ask you to consider this question and think about this. Is there anybody here this morning, don't raise your hand. Is there anybody here this morning who feels like they're on the fringe? Who feels like their faith was something of the past, something that was a little bit distant, something that they haven't been able to get their fingers into lately? Anybody who feels like maybe they've fallen out of fellowship with God or left the altar. Anyone who feels like, man, I'm wandering, I'm sitting on the fringe, I'm not involved, I'm not connected. People don't even know what's really going on in my heart, in my life. Because if that's you this morning, I'm here to tell you, God knew you were coming. Frankly, I didn't want to just sit on these two verses. But it became clear that I needed to. Maybe like Abraham, you witnessed or experienced some kind of tragedy, something you couldn't make sense of in your life, some kind of problem or trauma, and you just walked away from fellowship with God and said, I can't deal with a God who would allow this to happen. Maybe there's just some old sin tucked away in the closet of your life that you refuse to deal with or don't think you can deal with. Maybe it's something that you think is so bad that if you bring light on it, if you shed light on it, if you try and bring it before God, you're just going to end up like Sodom and Gomorrah yourself. If you feel that way this morning, I plead with you to come back from the fringe. It is so simple. Isaiah chapter 30, verse 15. Isaiah says, The Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, has said in repentance and rest, you will be saved. In quietness and trust is your strength. But you were not willing. You said, no, we will flee on horses. Therefore, you will flee. Well, you said, we will ride off on swift horses. Therefore, those who pursue you will be swift. He's giving a word picture here that's stunning. The way people run from repentance, the way people run from confessing what's really going on in our lives. God says, look, in repentance, you'll find your salvation. You'll find your peace. You'll find your rest. If you confess, if you'll just be real with me. We say, no, 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 I got it. I'm good. I got it covered. And we jump on horses and we ride off swiftly. And God says, then your pursuer is going to be swift as well. He says, 1,000 will flee at the threat of one. You will all flee at the threat of five until you are left as a flag on a mountaintop. As a signal on a hill. What's that mean? What kind of signal? A signal of emptiness. A signal of barrenness. Of life on the fringe. This is what we do to ourselves when we can't confess our sin. When we can't repent of the failures of our life. When we can't just bring it before God and say, like Abraham, Lord, I did it again. What does the Lord want from us? Revelation 3:20, he says, "Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him, and will dine with him. It's fellowship. He wants us to come back to Hebron, back to fellowship, back to that place of dining with him, of eating with him, sharing a meal, sweet fellowship, to life-giving worship. He wants us to come back to the altar." Where we can worship Him with a pure heart because He has cleansed that heart. He wants us to reject the old sins that creep up. Well, how do I do this? By repenting. Repentance, that, that word that has become somehow an ugly word. Oh, yes, repent. Because you're such a vile thing. Repent. Because you've got to get it off your chest. Repent because when you do, the Father is waiting with his arms wide open to pick you up and carry you. 1 John chapter 1, verse 8 says, If we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. Folks, if anyone among us wants to claim sinlessness, guess what? You are deceiving yourself. You're committing sin by saying you have no sin because you're lying. If you say you have no sin, folks, you're deceiving yourselves. The truth is not in it. Verse 9, John says, but if we confess our sins, if we confess our sins, he is faithful. He is righteous to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. By the way, this is a message for Christians and non-Christians alike. J. Vernon McGee writes, Blessing is being withheld from the church and from the lives of many believers because we will not deal with the sin in our lives. You cannot just show up on a Sunday morning, sing a few songs, take some some communion, and then go back to living a sin life. Pretending that you can do one and the other, living two lives. God says, it doesn't work like that. I don't live in the barn. None of us live in the barn. God wants fellowship with you every single day of your life. He wants to walk with you, to be with you, to love you. But if we're not dealing with the sin in our lives, we're keeping God at bay. We're not allowing Him to join us in our lives. Come back from the fringe. Come back to the altar. And that's the place where I want us to end this morning. The altar. Because, folks, the altar is always the place of sacrifice in the Bible. Always the reminder of the ultimate sacrifice in the Bible. Now watch this. Last thing. This is absolutely fascinating to me. The next time Abraham builds an altar... Remember, he had the one in Hebron. He leaves that altar in Hebron, goes down to Gerar. He sojourns for a while. The next time we see in Scripture that he builds an altar is Genesis 22. Flip there real quickly. Genesis chapter 22... In verse 2, God is speaking to Abraham, and he says, Take now your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go into the land of Moriah. And offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. Down in verse 9, it tells us, Then they came to the place of which God had told him. And Abraham built the altar there and arranged the wood and bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Listen, Abraham needed this. This whole issue, in Genesis 22, one of the most famous and important chapters in the entire scriptures. Where Abraham takes his son Isaac up to Mount Moriah, binds him, puts him on an altar, and is prepared to sacrifice him to God because God told him to do it. Why did God tell him to do it? Because Abraham needed to do it. Partially, yes, it was a test of faith. It was was so that God... It wasn't even so God could see Abraham's faith. God knew Abraham's faith. It was so Abraham could see it. It was so Abraham could be brought back into fellowship with God. So he could understand that God had all things under hand. Folks, Abraham needed to come back to the altar and complete faith in the Lord. It's the defining moment of his life and his faith. But students of prophecy, take note of this. In chapter 21 of Genesis, Isaac is born. Sarah's 90 years old. She's 90 when Isaac is born. Another interesting thing by the way in the story in chapter 20 is that she's still beautiful. Abimelech still wants her in his harem. 90 years old. Hey, there's a gorgeous 90-year-old babe. (laughs) She must have been a stunning woman. One person made the comment that maybe he thought that it was because she was going to have Isaac that God was restoring her body to be able to have Isaac, and she was indeed becoming even more beautiful than she had been in 30 years. But 90 years old, and Isaac was born. Chapter 22 of Genesis tells us that Abraham and Isaac built the altar on Mount Moriah. And chapter 23, the very next chapter, right after this incident, or close thereafter, Sarah dies. How old was Sarah when she died? 127 years old. Now listen to this. Carefully think through this. At the time of Abraham's famous near sacrifice of Isaac, his son was most likely in his 30s. Possibly, I would venture a guess, I can't say for sure, but I would not be at all surprised if he was 33. If Isaac was 33, it would fit a pattern here for the location of the final altar that Abraham built. The altar God called him to build, the altar he needed to build, is Mount Moriah. You know it by another name, Mount Calvary. The exact place where Jesus was crucified on the cross At age 33. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through Him. Gang, we make so much out of this, but it's really very simple. God wants you free from your sin. He wants me cleaned of the things that I do that separate me from Him. He wants me in fellowship. He wants me there at the altar. Folks, He wants to remove the sin from my life. How does He do it? He did it by offering His only Son, Jesus, on the cross. Your response and my response is to thank Him for it, to believe that it happened and to accept His Lordship over our lives, repenting of our sins and confessing them before the Father. It's so simple. God loves you that much. You realize the whole thing was a setup. The whole story of Abraham and Isaac. In fact, as we see it, you'll be even more amazed in the coming couple of weeks. The whole thing is one massive story, picture, of the true sacrifice of a Father and Son, not Abraham and Isaac, Yehovah and Yeshua, the Father and Jesus. That's how much He loves us. Let's pray together. Father, when I consider the cross, when I think about that altar of sacrifice, when I pause in my life long enough to realize that you loved me before I ever knew you. It blows me away. And God, this morning, I know that I know that that somebody feels like they're outside. Feels like they're looking through the window at, at other righteous people. Would you tell them right now that is not the case? We're not a group of righteous people, not not by our own ability. God, if there's any righteousness in this place this morning, it's because of the blood of Jesus poured out on the cross that covers our sins. And we need that covering, Jesus. We need it desperately. As we pray, if this morning you have never accepted Jesus as your Lord and your Savior, if you have never committed your life to Him, if you've been afraid to confess to Him the sin that has kept you from Him, Oh, I plead with you to do it now, to come back from the fringe. And you can begin by praying this with me. Lord Jesus, I am a sinner. I don't have it together. I don't even understand all the ins and outs of doing the right thing. But I pray that you would forgive me. I confess my sins to you now. And I ask, Lord, that you would come into my life and forgive me and cleanse me by the blood of Jesus. Make me whole, Father. I accept you now as my Lord and as my Savior. And I pray that you'll take hold of my life and walk every day, not just today, not just tomorrow, but every day of my life. Walk with me and lead me home, Father. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.